Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, all right. Good morning to you all. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. I'm glad to see you with us on this rainy day. I hope you uh, celebrated uh, and had a great Star Wars day yesterday. I know I did, and uh, so I'm eager uh, to get, uh, get to our text this morning. Uh, Brad is not here. Brad is actually on a plane, I think, I hope, right now, heading back to the United States of America from uh, what I think was a really good uh, time in the UAE and India. Um, one of the things I just didn't really think about as he was going, I knew this, I just didn't think of the implications of it, is that while he was in, in, in India... Uh, he was helping, like he was teaching at a, a, a church retreat. I, I knew he was going to be doing like a conference. I knew he'd be speaking to pastors, but I just didn't really think of him being at like a Christian retreat center in the middle of India with all these Indian brothers and sisters who uh, have just different ways of doing things and relating to one another and different levels of personal space and sense of privacy and, and all that. You can talk to him about it. Uh, but at any rate, I think he's had a really good time at, at Christian camp in, in India, and I'm so eager, so eager to hear the stories that he has to tell, uh, and, and oh man, I hope he can share most of them at least with you. So, our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be in verses 12 through 17. We have been working through Romans uh, for the last two and a half years, uh, but we've taken a break this week and last week. Uh, to look at some, some other texts from God's Word. Uh, we're going to read the text. I'll have a few points to make. Um, and then when, when we are done, at the conclusion of our time together, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll gather together around the Lord's table and uh, remember and proclaim the death of Jesus. Um, I'll talk more about that uh, when we get to it. But if you're here and, and maybe this is your first Sunday here or you're not a believer, let's say, um, I, I do want you to to, to just be listening to, to the words of Scripture this morning. I want you to hear what the Lord might be saying to you. And, and as we come to the Lord's table, I, I would encourage you uh, to, to not participate in the Lord's Supper if you're not a believer. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper is making a declaration. It, it's saying something. It, it, it's, it's saying, I, I, I follow Christ. I, my life is His. And that, that's something we'll talk a lot about this morning uh, in our text. Uh, and so I would encourage you, and there is no shame in this whatsoever, to, to stay where you are uh, during, during the Lord's Supper when we get to that point. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get to this text. Um, Father, we, we thank you so much uh, for your grace toward us that you would gather us together here this morning, that we might hear from your word, that we would be nourished and fed uh, that we would be fed not only by the truths that we find in Scripture, but that we would be uh, cared for and, and, and nourished by uh, the fellowship that we share with one another by your Holy Spirit. Um, on a rainy day, sometimes uh, the, the temptation might be to just stay home or, or to be kind of quiet and, and uh, passive as we gather together. But, but Lord, I pray that as we are here now, that you would arrest our attention and that you would bring us to a, a deeper awareness of, of all that you are for us in Christ and all that you have called us to as we give our lives to you. 
pray that you would give us joy as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me give you a little background on our, our passage. Um, the Corinthian church, if you have read 1 Corinthians especially, you should be familiar that the Corinthian church is a mess. Uh, they are well known, not for the things that you would want a church to be well known for, they're well known for their sin, uh, pretty egregious, uh, grievous, unrepentant sin. That's kind of where this church gets their uh, reputation. And Paul has sent them one letter, he's, he's sent them multiple letters actually, and, and he's paid them visits, and, and he's expressed deep concern as one of the the men who is responsible to to care for and build this church up he's deeply concerned about their their state and so at some point prior to second corinthians paul sends his ministry associate his ministry partner titus to visit the corinthian church to deliver uh, word from paul and to report back to paul about everything that's going on to let Paul know an update, hopefully good news, that the Corinthians are, have, have repented of their sin, uh, that they, they have addressed it, and that they are pursuing holiness as a church family. This is what Paul so desires to hear about this church that he loves. And so Paul is not with them. He's, he's not in Corinth. In fact, he is preaching the gospel elsewhere. He's in a city called Troas, and he's expecting or he tells us that in the past, of before this letter, that he was expecting a visit from his friend Titus to give him this, this good report. So let's, let's see then what, what he tells us about that. In verse 12, when I, came on, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So there's two things that that Paul explains to us that that are going on here at the same time in his trip to this this town. One is that the gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing. We know this because he says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Uh, you can you maybe guess as to how that exactly plays out, but, but one way or another, Paul feels justified in spending his time in this city. We know that everywhere Paul goes, he preaches the gospel. He wants to see lost people come to life. And so when Paul says that a door has been opened to him, we can only guess that, that there is some evidence of fruitfulness going on in his ministry. And he's Rightly, we would imagine, encouraged, hopeful. But there's something else that's also going on while he's there, and that is an inward restlessness in Paul's own spirit. He says, I I did not find my brother Titus there. And we know that wrapped up in this is the truth that Paul now still does not know what the latest is with the Corinthian church. And, and, and so his concern, it certainly hasn't improved. It hasn't gone away. If anything, he's probably more concerned because his brother Titus is not rendezvousing at the place that they were supposed to meet. And he wonders maybe what, what, what's going on with him, but even more so what's going on with the Corinthian church. The result of these two things colliding here in Troas is that Paul leaves. He says, I took leave of them, in verse 13. 
What do you, what do you make of a story like this? You know, Paul, Paul's reporting this after the fact. Um, but he's not necessarily making this an example for us to follow, per se, either. He's not saying, hey, this is something you should do. If you're ever disappointed, frustrated with, with what's going on in a church that you're shepherding, you can just leave the ministry that you're in in another city and move on to another place. He's not saying this is a pattern for you to follow. But this is what he does. How would you, I want you to think to yourself, how would you counsel Paul? You know what? Let's say Paul is your friend. Let's say you're not beholden to the opinions and wisdom of the Apostle Paul, and he comes to you and he is grievous over the sin of the Corinthian church. So, so it so overshadows and overwhelms him that, that he can't really continue in the ministry that he's doing in, in the place where he presently is. Is that failure? Now, there, there are different responses that I think would be pretty common, if we were honest. For some, you know, I think some would look to Paul and they would say, Paul, you need to reject negativity in your life, right? You, need, you, you can't hold on to that. You've got to cast that aside. You need to choose to walk in victory, Paul. Maybe they'd even say something like, Paul, wash your face. Sorry. Not sorry. For others, you might say, Paul, you, life, this is life. Life is hard. You should embrace it. You should revel in it, even. Post, post pictures of it on Instagram and hashtag real life it. You know, like this is, this is no big deal. You're tough. You can deal with this, right? You're Paul. It might be the way others approach this, but I hope you see how utterly tone-deaf and naive all of that advice sounds, right? It's, it's pretty pathetic. You know, pre pretend everything's good, Paul, or, or pretend nothing is bad, right? Just tough it out, act like everything's fine. But this is what passes for wisdom today, right? It passes for wisdom in the world. It even passes for wisdom in, in the church at times. And, and so we need to see then what, what direction Paul goes with this. What, what direction does 2 Corinthians 2 take us here? Because it doesn't, it doesn't give us either of those perspectives. So Paul's aim in, in his whole life is to glorify the Lord, right? That, that is Paul's goal. We see it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the same man. Right, this, is, this, is, this is the same theology at, at work here. Paul's goal, his life's aim, is to glorify the Lord. So let's talk about goals for a minute. And when I say goals... I don't necessarily mean like better Mondays, you understand? I'm thinking more in terms of big picture, life's aim sort of goals and ambitions. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those whose goal it is to glorify their creator, and there are those whose goal, whose aim it is to glorify the creature, whether it's yourself or someone else or, or a demon from hell. That, those are the two kinds of people in this world. 
right? There, there's just no, there's really no middle ground. We know this, if you're a believer, you, you know this, that this dichotomy. What I think is so confusing, though, is that when the desire to glorify God is met with disappointment or failure, right? We think, how, how, can, how can this be? How, how does this work out? I, I want to see the Lord glorified in my life. I'm not looking for a, a, a Ferrari. I'm not looking for material wealth or success. I'm not looking for those things as a result of wanting to glorify the Lord. There are plenty of good, noble, wonderful things that I want to see the Lord do, that I want to be a part of. Why, why is the Lord not, why are these things not coming to fruition? Let me give you some examples. Maybe, maybe you want to see your children know the Lord, but it's just not happening. Maybe you want to see your parents know the Lord, and, and you, you feel like time is running out, but nothing, nothing there's just not even a, a hint um, that, that they're willing to, to hear the gospel or follow the Lord. Maybe you want to be more diligent in your own personal pursuit of holiness, your fight against indwelling sin, but you just feel powerless. Maybe you're grieved by the sin of those you've considered to be brothers or sisters in Christ, and now you're not really sure what what to believe anymore. Maybe you want to be more bold in your interactions with the lost, that they might know the hope that you have in Christ. Maybe you faithfully shared the gospel with friends or family for years, only to be rejected, disowned, or sometimes what's even worse, patted on the head, but disregarded. Maybe things are just getting started in your life, in your walk with the Lord. You feel like you're in a good place, but but the army wants you to go somewhere else where you feel like you're going to have to start entirely over. Or you're wrapping up your time at CSU and, and, and you're looking ahead to some other opportunity in another city, another country even, and you wonder if that's where everything's just going to fall apart because you won't have the support that you have here. I don't know. There's so many ways that in, just in the Christian life, we, we experience trial and, and disappointment even when we're looking for and seeking after the best things. And if we're not careful, we can let these things become referenda on our faithfulness to God. In other words, we can look at the circumstances that we're dealing with and we can suspect, we can wonder if this is actually a reflection on me in some way. Is this something that I have or have not done? Is there something that I should be doing better? Maybe I don't know the Lord like I thought I did. Maybe, maybe he doesn't actually know me. Even a life as utterly devoted to the Lord as Paul's will experience impasses like these. And we see it right here in Paul's own life. And this brings us then to my first point. 
which is this, the, the Christian life, a life devoted to God's glory in, in a fallen world will always, always intermingle joy and disappointment. They will always, this side of eternity, be right alongside each other. This side of eternity, the command to be fruitful and multiply, right? this good, blessed command that the Lord gives, it will always compete with the fall. And if you're familiar with Genesis and the fall and the sin, one of the results is what's called the curse. And so in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God curses the ground and he says, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. That, that's life in a fallen world. It's, it's the Christian life in a fallen world. We will sweat and we will toil and we will work and we will, we will seek and pursue to be obedient to the Lord even, to, to honor him with how we live. And, and we will still be faced with what we might conceive of as failure. Um, Paul himself goes on to describe his own work in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 4 through 10, he says, he describes it as something of great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The Christian life is quite a, uh, it's quite a paradox. The Christian life is simply not about sprinkling gospel fairy dust, right, on everything and then just watching it flourish. All right, that, that would be Pollyanna. But this is Paul. What Paul says is different, and he has a different understanding of what the Christian life is. So let's, let's go on to verses 14 through 17. He says, but thanks be to God. Where are you going with this, Paul? who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. My second point is this. The Christian life is a triumphal procession. This is how Paul frames it for us here. 
This is how we need to conceive of the Christian life, and I'm afraid too often we, we, we don't think of it this way. What is a triumphal procession? You may be thinking, Robert, a triumphal procession sounds an awful lot like just kind of walking in victory everywhere you go, acting like nothing wrong is happening in the world. Let me tell you what a triumphal procession actually is, because it is somewhat different from that. A triumphal procession in, in the ancient world is like, it's like a military celebration in which the victor parades the vanquished through his city. Now, incense might be burned, offerings might be made to their gods, and, and the king, the victor, though, he, he would be glorified and magnified in his victorious march through the town. In the end, the vanquished, led in chains, are, are often actually sacrificed. The Bible is filled with metaphors for the Christian life. Uh, this is an interesting one. It's the one that Paul deploys in this moment, though, because I think it perfectly meets the tension that, that we're describing here. Let me explain why. There's a major detail that he, he mentions that we might just gloss over, but it, it's, it's crucial. In verse 14, he, he answers this question, Who, who's being led in this triumphal procession? And Paul says that it is us. He leads us in triumphal procession. Us. Now Paul is speaking of himself, certainly. He's speaking of the apostles, maybe more generally, but even more broadly than that, I think we can apply what he's saying here, this us, to us, right? Uh, to those who follow Christ today. Right? This is still true. This is still what the Christian life looks like. We are defeated rebels. If you are in Christ, you, you know the rebellion that I'm talking about. You're, you're a defeated rebel who has been made into a trophy of God's grace and of his might and of his glory. That's what you are. You are a reminder to anyone who will watch of God's victory. That is what you are. Whether you eat or sleep or whatever you do, that is who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a reminder, truly, of who God is, of what he has done. Paul says in verse 14, we are the fragrance of the knowledge of him. He says in verse 15 that we are the aroma of Christ to God. It's as if we are the incense in this procession. We are are the pleasing aroma of sacrifice to our victorious king. That's the Christian life. So our, our, the Christian life isn't a victory lap then for us. It's a victory lap. It, it's, it's the home run trot of, of the Lord. It's, it's for his glory, not our own, that we have been saved. So our commission then is to glorify the king in everything, whether it is joy or disappointment, life or death itself. That's our commission. Psalm 68, 18 reminds me of this. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. You, if you're trusting in the Lord, you are a prisoner of war, captured by 
captured by our wonderful God for his purposes, for his plans. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 uh, through 11 says, this is Paul again. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given, driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus's sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This has some big implications, as I'm sure you can imagine. Implication number one, if you are a believer, your life is not your own, but it belongs to Christ. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you don't see your life as commissioned in this way you might not actually be a Christian then, right? How, how does this square with you? How, how does this, how do you, how do you respond to this? I mean, this certainly flies in the face of, of worldly wisdom. It flies in the face of some who would even claim to know Christ, right? That your life isn't your own, but that, that it is actually Christ, that whatever you do, you, you actually, it, it should be sacrificed and given over to him, all your preferences, all the things that you want to do, all the goals and dreams and aspirations that you thought you had, all of that actually belongs to Jesus now, if you're, if you're in him. To the world, that's, that's utterly terrifying, right? Because they don't see Jesus as this benevolent, kind, gracious, merciful, holy, righteous, mighty, powerful king. They don't see him that way. They see him as a stooge. Why in the world would you give your life to a stooge? That's foolish. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not who our God is. Your life in his hands is, is really, it is actually the only place it has ever been, and it is the only place you can put it safely. So here's, here's, here's how this changes everything. Because if you are in Christ, then there's not an element of your life whether joy or disappointment, victory or defeat, there's not one element of your life that the Lord isn't or can't use for his glory. And so you are always being led in triumphal procession as a testament, not to your power, but to his. Right? Not, not to your glory for your name, but for him. That is what it means for your life to be the Lord's. He will be victorious. He is worthy of all glory and honor. Even as we lose our lives, he is glorified. And that is, or it should be, our life's aim. Now the world scoffs at this though, right? And maybe even some of you sitting right now, you're, you're kind of cringing at what I, uh, what I have to say uh, about this. Here's, here's the twist. Paul doesn't see this understanding of the Christian life as a death march. He sees it as a privilege, as an honor, and so should we. Even as we lay down our lives, we rejoice in the glory of the one who has not only defeated us, but who has graciously made us his representatives in this world. See, the reality is, and if you're not a believer, you gotta hear me say this, the reality is everybody is laying down their lives for someone or something. Everyone is. 
So can we dispense with the notion that laying down your life for its author is somehow a waste or foolish? What better place to put it? Who, what better hands to hold your life than the Lord's? Likewise, sorry, I lost my place. Here I am. Implication number two. God spreads the aroma of his son everywhere through his people. No matter who they are. How good looking they are, how talented they may be. Um, the Lord will always spread the aroma of his son everywhere through his people. That, that is what he has done. He does this among those who are being saved. He says in verse 16 that we are a fragrance from life to life. And he does this among those who are perishing as well. In verse 16, he says that to them we are a fragrance from death to death. That's difficult maybe to, to hear. It's difficult to think about in terms of maybe like personal situations you may be facing. I mean, imagine Paul. In his own mind, he, he could perhaps be thinking what's going on at the church in Corinth. Maybe I'm just the fragrance of death to death here. That's, that's difficult to... To understand it's difficult to swallow. The truth is, though, I mean, it is impossible for you to guarantee the outcome that you might desire. No matter how noble, no matter how holy it is, it, and so often we think that we know what would glorify the Lord best. But, but it's not us on display here, right? It's Christ who is on display. Likewise, it's not our sufficiency on display, but, but Christ's sufficiency. I love what Paul says. He, he says in uh, verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. You're not, you're not just some like salesman. Do you know that? If you're a believer, you're not you're not a peddler. You're not just a salesman with some pitch to be made where it kind of depends on you hooking people in and telling them exactly what they need to hear, kind of opening the key to, to their mind, to their heart. Now, you are commissioned by God, right? That, that's, a, that's, that's what we call a, uh, I don't know what we call it. I lost the term. God, he, he, he does what he wants. He's commissioned you. You are commissioned, yet you didn't earn that commissioning. This is something that the Lord has done. In other words, he is the one who makes us sufficient for this, this privilege. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6, just a few paragraphs down, Paul says that this is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So let's recap. Paul sees an open door of ministry in Troas, but because of his growing restlessness concerning the Corinthian church, he chooses to leave. And in it all, he says, even as I give my life away for the gospel, I cannot assume that my sacrifice 
will accomplish what I intend. But in Christ, I am sufficient for the task that he has given to me. Praise God that God's glory doesn't depend on your goals, your desires, your ambitions, your abilities. Praise God. Because what's truly ironic about all of that is that, that that's if you, only if you find yourself in that place will you actually be freed up to glorify the Lord with your life. When you despair of yourself, you lay down your own preferences and dreams and goals, even the greatest ones, and you say, Lord, I, I just, you, I need you to be front and center here. This is a triumphal procession. I'm just a POW that you're marching me through the town showing how mighty you are. That, that's, that's what I am. That's, that's who I am. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is Paul concluding his letter, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is true according to the verse before it because God, he says, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is my third point. We can give our lives away because Christ's victory is our victory. You know, anytime you are working out your salvation or the salvation of someone else and you think that that, like that depends on you, and it reveals that you think that the triumphal procession is really yours, that the sufficiency is yours. But when you remember that your life represents the victory of Christ, only then can you experience the joys and the disappointments of the Christian life in a fallen world without fear. Only then. This is true because Christ offered himself Therefore, our offering is possible. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. You catch that? And a sacrifice to God. The Lord's not asking you to do something that he hasn't actually gone before you to do. In fact, if he hadn't gone before you doing this, you wouldn't be able to do it. It's just, it just wouldn't be possible. That's why Paul appeals to the sacrifice of Christ when he encourages believers to make the sacrifice themselves. He says, because Christ has done this, only then can you walk in love. And likewise, because Christ offered himself, our offering is not only possible, but our offering of our own lives is acceptable to the Lord. Oh, don't think for a moment that I'm telling you that the Lord somehow needs your life to, to complete his plans. Now, your, your life on its own merits doesn't measure, doesn't account for anything before the Lord. Your hope may be for God's glory in this world, but you, you in and of yourself are, are unable to bring that about. In fact, you, you're, a, you're a detriment to that plan. Unless the Lord intervenes, unless the Lord steps in, unless the Lord actually changes you, takes all that makes you unrighteous, unholy, 
takes all the affronts to his glory, takes all that out of you. He, he gives it to his son and credits to you all about Christ that is righteous, good, true, and holy, and worthy. That's what happens. That's how God's glory is on display, even as you have, have nothing to contribute. Because if you contributed something, you would actually undermine it all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I didn't realize this was just going to be a walk through 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, but here we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 14, Paul says, The love of Christ controls us. As John would say, we only love because he first loved us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for us, that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And he goes on in verse 20 to say, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The world says that laying down your life is scary, and that's, that's rightly so, if the one for whom you are laying it down has no power to raise it up again. Okay, but, but our God gives to us exactly what he commands of us, and he sent his son that we might have life in him. So is it really a death march when the result is life? There's no other way to find life. Besides this, the Lord's glory can never be diminished in a life that has been surrendered to him. And in that way, both the joys and the disappointments of the Christian life give way to our heart's greatest desire, which is the glory of God in the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we... Um, We come to you bearing all, all kinds of burden. Lord, we, we want to see we want to see your name glorified. We want to see your name magnified. In our heart of hearts, as your people, this is truly what we desire, but we we know that we will always, this side of eternity, compete both with our own tendencies to steal glory. And, and, and that we will also face the, the realities of a fallen world, which means that even our best efforts are oftentimes met with failure. Like Paul, we, we have people that we love, that we want to see know you and glorify you with their lives. And, and no matter, despite our best efforts, we feel helpless and, and, and fruitless. And it, and it weighs on us. And the solution is not to ignore it. The solution is not to, uh, to paint over it, to repaint the picture and just leave that element out. The, the solution, rather, is, is to come to you in our insufficiency and in our weakness and to cling all the more to your power. 
Or that, that's our only hope. That is the hope of the gospel, though. That in our insufficiency, you have made us right with you. That you sent your son, not because we were worthy, but because we were so unworthy. And in your love for us, you, you gave him up as an offering in our stead. And so as we trust in him, why should we expect anything else? But that we would follow in his steps, also laying down our lives, knowing that we cannot actually lose it that way. In fact, you, you have told us in your Gospels that by, by laying down, by giving away our lives, that's actually how we find it. Oh, Lord, would you make us bold? Would you make us kind and compassionate? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us opportunities? Would you open doors for us that we might take them? But Lord, would you protect us from feeling like it, it all hinges on how well we open those doors? how valiant and great we are. Because all of this, even, even the way in which we seem to struggle and strive, all of it is, is, is meant to reflect how, how mighty and great you are. So Lord, would you, would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us renewed hope? Would you give us a new vision for the Christian life? That we would lay down our, our own lives and find true life in your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.